0: It's a pleasure and a delight to be here and a solemn responsibility to bring the Word of God. Um, I praise the Lord for you, brethren, and ask that if you would please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We'll read verses 13 through 19. Hear now the reading of God's inspired Word, profitable for us. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Starting at verse 13. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air. The likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth, unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldst be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and in consideration of it now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your glorious name, which is exalted above all praise and above all heavens. We thank you that you are glorious in power, doing wonders in the midst of the earth. We thank you for your grace in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, and pray that as we consider your word, you might enlighten our minds in the knowledge of your will, that you would persuade and enable us to embrace the Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might grow in grace and knowledge, seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, and that you would write your holy law upon our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Moses is beginning here in his sermon to the people of Israel, saying farewell to them, in the book of Deuteronomy, and he's recapitulating to them the namesake of this book, the Ten Commandments. Deuteros, second, as your brethren know, namas is the law. The second repetition of the law, specifically the Ten Commandments, which he refers to here in verse 13. This is an extremely important preparation for the people. They're about to go in and inherit the land under Joshua, And this is their final instruction so that they may know how to please God. What are the works that God is pleased with? What are the sins he forbids us and is displeased with? And should we desire his blessing upon our nation or on our church or on our family? How is it that we may please God? These are the instructions of the book of Deuteronomy. Notice here in verse 13, it says, And he declared unto you his covenant. Now, the term covenant is very interesting throughout the Old Testament. It often refers to the inheritance that God gives, the land of promise, for example, the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And that would be the promissory part of God's covenant, where he says, I will do these things. I establish my covenant for your benefit and also for your heirs. So there's a succession of uh, heirs, you might say, or inheritance within God's law. But there's also another part of God's covenant, and that is what we call the mandatory part. There are the promises of God and the precepts of God. There are those things He says He will do and those things He requires of us to do. And here we see God refers to His law, or the Ten Commandments in particular, as His covenant, the mandatory part of his covenant. Here are my promises. This is what you're to believe concerning God. And what's the second part of our shorter catechism question three? What is the duty God requires of us? So now here he's giving them the duty that he requires. He declared his covenant. He said it conspicuously as the Hebrew term implies. He published his very own covenant, not your covenant with him, his covenant with you. This is what he gave you. In fact, if you think of the Ark of the Testament, what's inside? God's law. That is his covenant. That is his testament. Those are your inheritance, your statutes that I made with you, the Lord says. And he published it openly and publicly, written with his finger, reflecting his glory, Binding all men everywhere, as the passage implies, the Gentiles looking on and saying, What nation has such righteous statutes? All the Gentiles could see the Ten Commandments are a rule of their life, written upon the heart, engraven by God in tablets of stone, and published to his own people in a special way as part of his covenant with them. Now, notice, he declared unto you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. It was not optional. It was not merely that you should think the correct thoughts, but rather that you should do the correct things. So you are to perform it. You are to do in your thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds, in all things, exactly what you know to be true, because God has declared and published it to you. Notice, even Ten Commandments. This is the covenant of God in its mandatory part. A perfect rule of duty, as we often think of the number ten, as a completion, a filling up. This is everything you need to know about the duty I require of you, perhaps we would say in summary fashion, but still a perfect rule of duty for the people of God in God's covenant. This contains everything, these Ten Commandments, contains everything necessary, perpetual, and moral for the duties of man. This is the summary, the abbreviation, the epitome of God's holy law. And notice, he wrote them upon two tables of stone. There is one table which contains the duty we owe to God, And there is a second table that says the duty we owe to man. He wrote them, that is the Ten Commandments, not two copies, one on this table and one on this table, no. He wrote them on two tables. There are two tables of the law, half on one, half on the other, we might say, or the first table being our duty to God. God wrote them. I note then this doctrine from our Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 2. It says that this law, after man's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments, and written in two tables, the first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six our duty to man. This is the natural law, in other words. This is what God wrote upon the heart of Adam, as is previously and referenced here, this law after his fall, that is Adam's fall. Adam had it written upon his heart. It continued after his fall as a perfect rule of righteousness in these two tables of the law. God's covenant reflects the teaching of Scripture generally. The Scriptures principally teach... What is man to believe concerning God? And what is the duty God requires of man? So here we have in God's covenant, I've made promise and now I have precepts. Here are your laws, my covenant with you, your duty to me. God has a moral right to rule his rational creatures. God has the ultimate and supreme right to tell us precisely and exactly what we ought to do, and this is what he's doing in his covenant. He's saying to us, here is my sovereign will for you. You shall do this. You shall not do this. Let us then perform, keep and do in our thoughts, words and deeds what God has required of us in his holy law. Let us love God with all that we have and are, and let us love our neighbor as ourselves. This is merely the thankful offering that we offer to the Lord, even our obedience. Notice verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that ye might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Notice, the Lord commanded me at that time. Much different, isn't it? God wrote the Ten Commandments. Now he has some other statutes and judgments, and he commands Moses to write them down and to teach the people those commandments. This is the precise nature of our Bible. It is not written by the wisdom of the Egyptians, by the ancient Near East pattern. No, God commanded Moses to write down these statutes and these judgments. All of Scripture is God-breathed. God gave commandment and charge to the prophets and to the apostles to record for us what is the will of God concerning our salvation and the duty God requires. That's what he's saying. God commanded me. Right around the same time I published, or God published, those Ten Commandments, he also gave me orders to record these other statutes and judgments. To teach you, he says, these statutes. Now the word statute comes from the word for standing, something that is written down or a standing law. God gave them laws of worship, prescribed rules and tasks. This is what worship is. It's a statute. It's a precept. It's where God says, I'm going to put up a law and I want you to do the orders in precisely the manner that I say. These are statutes of worship done in obedience to God's revealed will through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, which even in their statutes, they had shadowed forth to them, the blood of the lamb, the sprinkling of blood and the Holy Ghost, anointing with oil, washing with water as God said he would wash them with his spirit and with the blood of his son. So here we have the statutes of worship given to them. And notice also what else was Moses to teach them? And judgments, ordinances of judgment, civil penalties. What are crimes and how ought the magistrate to punish them? God gave them laws of worship through Moses. And he gave them laws of civil administration. Again, note, these statutes and judgments were not mandatory. Here's the purpose, that ye might do them. Your whole people, ye, all of you, all of you do these statutes and these judgments. That's my purpose, God says, for commanding Moses to record them down. In your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, Not merely laws to be admired. Oh, isn't that nice how God says we ought to worship? But that we ought to do precisely what he has said in his statute book. And the magistrate not saying, well, what seems good to me? What do I think is the appropriate punishment for this particular action? Or, you know... That person's just a product of their environment. If they had better parents, if they had better education, they wouldn't have committed this crime. No. That ye might do them, not ignore them, not sidestep them, not silence the loudness with which God speaks, or to make louder than what he says what he actually said, but to hear precisely what he has said, not to turn to the right, not to turn to the left, but to walk right in his ways. And notice also that you might do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. Now, this is a land promised by God. And the word possess is very interesting. It can mean to be made into an heir or to receive an inheritance or to dispossess. And Joshua, we find, uses the words for inheritance Again and again and again. He'll say three or four times in a verse. He'll use different words about inheritance or testifying or oath. He refers to the beneficiaries. He refers to God, the testator. He gives them all kinds of information. But here, notice, you're going over to inherit this land. Here's the promissory part. God has promised that you shall have this land in your father Abraham Whom he appointed as a beneficiary, and his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, and his twelve sons, and you, their sons. You are the heirs of God, the heirs of his promises. This land will be possessed, it will be taken as an inheritance. But notice, God's covenant has both the promissory and the mandatory. What would happen if they said, Lord, We thank you for your promises. We praise you for your mercy and your grace. But those commandments you gave us, we don't want to listen to those. No, those aren't for us. We are free from the law, oh happy condition. We can sin all we please and still have remission. No, that's not how it worked. You must go into the land receiving my inheritance and my promise and what? Listen to, to, to my commandments. Learn them from Moses and do them in the land whither ye go over to possess it. I note then this doctrine that beside the moral law or the Ten Commandments, God gave Israel statutes or ceremonies of worship and judicial laws. That's what he's saying. God published the Ten Commandments himself. Then God commanded me at the same time as he gave this, about that same time, God commanded me to write down and to teach you these statutes. How ought God to be worshiped? How should you serve God as a nation and be blessed by God as a nation? God did this by his providence in his grace to Israel. Those tables of stone give us that everlasting, enduring law. And God in his commandments begins, as we see in Exodus 21, to explain for them what should your life look like as a nation, 21, 22, 23, and then what? How ought you to worship me? How are the statutes of worship to be done and ordered within your society as a church body? And how should you administer justice as a civil body? God gave them laws of worship and forensic duties, and he bound them to perform those within that land of promise. Now notice, God in his grace gave them these things, not with his own finger, these statutes and judgments, no, rather through the pen of Moses, through his doctrine, through the inspired word of God, making a distinction between that is published directly by God, written on tables of stone and also on the tables of the heart, and that which God gave them for the land for that time. And our confession actually distinguishes these through these two. God gave them forensic laws, and remember, they bound that nation while they were in that land as a peculiar people, except so far as what? The general equity thereof may require. Now, what is, in the context of our confession of faith, what is this idea of general? Well, what is the difference between general and what? Particular. Things that are unique, things that are Applied by God to the specific circumstances of this land and this people at this time. As a church under age, you might say, he gave them certain figures and types, even within their judicial laws of how God would bring a Messiah and how he would accomplish their redemption. For example, if you have a man whose name is going to be blotted out, what do you do? Well, you violate the ordinary rules about not marrying someone who is by affinity joined to you as a brother or a sister, which is otherwise forbidden in Leviticus 18. But here there is a special dispensation. God gave them those things to foresignify certain things about the gospel. But those things that are general, they apply to all men everywhere, at all time, in every spiritual condition. And here God gives them Not a precise distinction, no. We as New Covenant Christians, we look back and we recognize, yes, there were laws that were unique to the Old Covenant, and there are laws that if we said we don't have to obey, what would we be saying? We're not human. The gospel has transformed us. We no longer have to keep God's general equity, the justice that applies to all men, because now Jesus died on the cross, and what has grace done but abolished the law? That's nonsense. That's godless. That's wicked we must distinguish, then, within the laws of Moses. Is this of particular right given to the Israelites as Israelites in a particular place, time, with a manner of worship and justice? Or is this given to them as men created in the image of God? If we say we don't have to obey those, we are saying we are no longer men, that the gospel has made us into beasts and that we no longer have to obey God in his moral requirements. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, when the apostles Peter and Jude talk about men who teach against the law of God, what do they call them? Well, they're like brute beasts, aren't they? They're like animals, a logos. They have no rationality, no reason. Why? Because they're saying grace causes us to be licentious. We can disobey the laws of God written on Adam's heart, written on tables of stone, because Jesus died upon the cross. No. Let us carefully instruct our people how to apply God's moral law and those forensic statutes given to Israel, not merely as Jews in a peculiar place, but as men created in the image of God. Are we still created in the image of God? Yes, we are. In fact, we're renewed in the image of God by the grace of the gospel. Therefore, God's laws, both forensic and moral, personal, civil, ecclesiastical, if they apply to them as men, they apply to us as men as well. Notice verse 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude On the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb. Out of the midst of the fire. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves. In light of the ten commandments. In light of the statutes and the judgments. There's something God's ultra concerned about. He's extremely concerned about this. Use An abundance of watching, he says. Good heed. Be extremely cautious. Why? Well, because you're sinners, aren't you? You're liable to temptation. You might depart from me, and here's the linchpin of your departure, is that you will make graven images. You will take the majesty of the glory of God and make a thing with your hands and say, That's like him. So when God published the Ten Commandments, he gave them no figures of male or female or birds or reptiles or fish, did he? Was there a cloud? Yes, it was called the glory of God. And that cloud was like a fire upon the mountain. But did he give them figures that they could make a little copy of and a statue? No. And he's telling them, take extreme cautious in this matter use abundance of watching like you would look after a treasure watch yourselves you are not immune from idolatry from being tempted by it or falling into it let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest what he fall and then what does the apostle say flee idolatry after he said god will provide you a way of escape he'll be able you'll be able to bear it because god and his compassion will not burden you more than you're able to take but then after that what does he say oh well because god will provide a way of escape Ha! i'm all set there's nothing i need to do no flee from idolatry don't go to the table of devils don't eat their meats Don't enter into their worship. Stay as far away as you can. Because why? Because you're liable to fall to the temptation. Take heed, good heed unto yourselves. For ye saw no manner of similitude, no form, no image, no likeness, no representation, no semblance, God would not have his glory, the fullness of his Godhead, put into the representations of a physical kind. He would not have that done. On the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, the solemnities of the Ten Commandments, no little images as the heathens would have when they published the statutes of their gods, No Baal, no Ashtaroth, no mice, no hemorrhoids as the Philistines made. None of that. No fish heads, nothing. And God, he says, spoke to them out of the midst of the fire, the glory cloud. Why did God have a cloud hiding his sovereign rule, his throne above on Mount Horeb with fire to say what? I am a holy God, a sovereign king, and I have a fiery law to devour my adversaries and to purge away the dross from my people. The Geneva Bible notes concerning this fire on Mount Horeb, signifying, they say, the destruction that is prepared for all who make any image to represent God. God is a jealous God, and where does he attach that statement in the Ten Commandments? The second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Why? For I, the Lord thy God, am a boiling fire to consume my adversaries. Oh, but you see, that's in the Old Testament, right? Like the book of Hebrews. That's in the Old Testament, right? No, wrong. God is a jealous God. His name is Jealous Verse 16, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female. Lest ye corrupt yourselves, the authorized version adds. Watch, avoid the temptation, the peril of corrupting both God's worship and dragging his glory down to the mud. And thereby corrupt yourselves. Make yourselves corrupt. And make you a graven image. This is the Hebrew word pesel, an idol or an image. Then he goes further the similitude of any figure. Similitude being a form, an image, a likeness, a representation, a semblance. Don't even make the form of one of their idols. Not even something that looks like one of their idols. Don't have monuments and reminders of their idols. Of the things that they do in their lawless heathen worship. Don't even let it come near you. Lest you corrupt yourselves. Please open to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. How does man corrupt himself? By making a graven image. Romans 1, we'll look at verses 20 through 25. And the apostle gives the invisible attributes of God on purpose. Verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Now, ask yourself a question. The eternal power and Godhead of God Himself, can man somehow represent that? Is there some way that there's anything you could do to say, Godhead, let me make some kind of image of that? And God would say, yeah, that's right, that represents me. No, He says that images are what? Teachers, of the laity, teachers of the unlearned, teachers of children, teachers of lies. That's what he says. Because that, when they knew God, remember the invisible God with his eternal power and Godhead? When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. They had reasonings. You know this, don't you? Augustine deals with these heathens. They said, well, look, you Christians say that where an image is, there is no religion. But you know, our religion, we don't really worship these things. We worship the divine spirit that is represented by these things. Is that what God says? They became futile in their reasonings, in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened professing themselves to be wise, or in the very act of professing themselves to be wise, they became fools or were made fools. By who? By whom? God made them fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now notice, There's no mention of worshiping these things just yet. We'll get to that in Romans. All they did at this point is what? Make the image. That's it. And by doing that, they made an exchange. The glorious, invisible attributes of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. They exchanged that for an image. A lie. A thing that is not true. Wherefore, verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God, that is, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and Godhead, who changed the truth of God into a lie, that is, an image, which is always a lie, and then notice, they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever forever, Amen. And that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 4. You will corrupt yourselves by making an image. Then you will be drawn at the end of our passage in Deuteronomy 4. Then you will be drawn to worship the host of heaven. It starts just by making it. You exchange the truth of God for the lie, he says. You hand in the truth you know about the invisible God and the lie of the image put it in its place. I note then this doctrine. Nothing that is to be adored is to be manufactured. Manus is your hands. Factus is made. Manufactured, made by your hands. You can't push a button and do it either and have some machine do it. Nothing that is to be worshipped is to be made by hands. Franciscus Junius put it this way. He that forbiddeth images to be worshipped doth forbid having an image worshipable. If there's any object that ought to be worshipped by men, you must not make an image of it, period. Full stop, no exceptions. Anything that ought to be worshipped must not be formed by the hands of men. Our larger catechism, question 109, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself, tolerating a false religion, the making of any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly, in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. God has a fire of jealousy that rages whenever the revelation of himself as a glorious, invisible God is turned into an image. This rebukes the Roman Catholics, the so-called seventh ecumenical council of the Eastern Orthodox, the Lutherans who wink at these images of Jesus. No, God says, None of that. It's all trash. It's all provoking him to anger. Modernists who believe that Jesus is just, well, you know, he's a nice teacher. He's just a guy like you and me. He's just a human. Is he just a human? Now, each of the three persons in the Godhead is to be worshipped by us. And consequently, should we make any images of them? No. Is the Father fully God? Yes. Is the Son fully God? Yes. Is the Holy Ghost fully God? Yes. They are to be adored and worshipped and therefore no images of them. But is not Christ fully man as well as fully God? Didn't God appear in the form of an angel to eat bread with Abraham? Weren't there Christophanies and Theophanies in the Old Testament? Didn't Jesus have a true body as well as a reasonable soul? Can we not then make an image of him or the likeness of the dove as it descended down or the likeness of the angel of the Lord? Couldn't we just make some image of them? What about in Revelation, all those representations or the book of Daniel or Ezekiel? Aren't they meant to stimulate our minds and urge us on to worship or at least art, if not worship? Our Lord, even the incarnate Christ is no mere man. Please open to Colossians chapter 1, in answer to this objection, which is often brought forth by our brethren, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Notice there how the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, weaves together both the Godhead of our Lord Jesus Christ, he created everything, He upholds everything. The pleroma, the fullness dwells in him, as we'll see in chapter 2 in a moment. But also, what happened? He died. He was fully man. Fully God and fully man. A theanthropic person, a divine person, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. There he is, weaving these two together. When we think of the manhood of Christ, we must think of his Godhead. And when we think of the Godhead of Christ, we must think of his manhood. God has woven these together in his word. He's heir of all things, the creator and end of all things. He has eternal power to govern all things. He is the king and head of his church, but he also died and rose again as man. He also shed his blood, the blood of God, the apostle says, in Acts chapter 20, spilled for us upon the cross. Look over at chapter 2, verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving." Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Here notice, Christ is a divine person. The fullness, the pleroma As the heathens thought of all their little demigods collected together with the great God, that was the Pleroma, the full attributes, the full personhood, all that God is, where? Bodily, in a bodily form, with a true body raised from the dead, died upon the cross. Yes, that is true. But here, notice, the fullness of what it is to be God of the Godhead itself in a bodily form, nothing less than the full Godhead in that body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And can this person be depicted as a mere bodily form? I do not believe so. No, not in the least. Because he's not truly possessed of a real body? No, of course not but because when you have the bodily presence of Christ, what else do you have? Philip, have I been so long with you? And you say, show us the Father. Well, how did he see that? By looking merely at the body. No, he realized the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Now the apostle tells the Athenians this very thing, that they ought not to think of the divine nature or the Godhead, as somehow subject to art, or the skill of men, or the capacity of the chiseler, or a facsimile copy, or a painting. None of the persons of the Godhead, none of those possessed of the fullness of deity, may be depicted. Now, this is not a mere right-wing ultra-Presbyterian conspiracy. Listen to the Justinian code. Justinian, who is worshipped, listen, he's worshipped by the Eastern Orthodox as a saint. Listen to what he said. As it is our diligent care to guard in every way the religious or the religion of the celestial divinity, we especially command that no one shall be permitted to trace, carve, or paint The image of Christ the Savior, either upon the earth, upon stone, or upon marble placed in the earth, but it shall be erased wherever found, and anyone who attempts to violate our laws in this respect shall be subject to a heavy penalty. Now the seventh so-called ecumenical council said, you are anathema if you don't honor these images. What did their magistrates say in the year 528 in the Justinian Code? Or the emperors Theodosius and Valentinian who issued this before then? What did they say? They said it's a crime and you should be punished. Why? Because this is what the church taught. Lactantius in his divine institute says where there is a religion, or excuse me, where there is an image, there is no religion. You have an image, you have no religion. You're an atheist. This is the belief of the Orthodox Fathers of the Church. The Council of Hiera, 754 AD, they say this, Wherefore we thought it right to show forth with all accuracy in our present definition the error of such as make and venerate these. For it is the unanimous doctrine of all the Holy Fathers and of the six ecumenical synods that no one may imagine any kind of separation or mingling in opposition to the unsearchable, unspeakable, and incomprehensible union of the two natures in the one hypostasis or person. What avails then the folly of the painter, who from sinful love of gain depicts that which should not be depicted, that is, with his polluted hands, he tries to fashion that which should only be believed in the heart and confessed with the mouth. He makes an image and calls it Christ. The name Christ signifies God and man. Consequently, it is an image of God and man. And consequently, he has in his foolish mind, in his representation of the created flesh, depicted the Godhead which cannot be represented, and thus mingled what should not be mingled. Thus he is guilty of a double blasphemy, the one in making an image of the Godhead, and the other by mingling the Godhead and the manhood. Oh, John Calvin must have been at that one for sure. That must have been John Knox. No, they're saying all six ecumenical councils, by their definition of the inseparable union of the divine and human natures of Christ, We've all taught this. It was a public law to punish those and erase the image wherever you found it. John Calvin in his sermon on Deuteronomy 4. And can a man devise to tear the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ and to deface his glory more than by the things that the papists do? Behold, they paint and portray Jesus Christ, who, as we know, is not only man, but also God manifested in the flesh. And what a representation is that? He is God's eternal Son, in whom dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead, yea, even substantially, seeing it is said substantially, should we have portraitures and images whereby only the flesh may be represented? Is it not a wiping away of that which is chiefest in our Lord Jesus Christ, that is to wit of his divine majesty? Yes, and therefore, whensoever a crucifix stands mopping and mowing in the church, it is all one, as if the devil had to face the Son of God. You see, then, that the papists are destitute of all excuse. Now, I could quote from the Second Helvetic Confession, Zacharias or Sinus in his exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism, Thomas Vincent in his commentary on the Shorter Catechism, Thomas Watson and his Body of Divinity, James Usher, Martin Bootser wrote a whole book against images of our Lord, Heinrich Bollinger's Decades, the Church of England has a homily against the peril of idolatry saying the same doctrine, James Duren, Francis Turretin, John Owen Wilhelmus Abrockel, what need I say more? J.G. Voss, let me just summarize here. His commentary on the larger catechism says this, While pictures of Jesus are extremely common in the present day, we should realize that in Calvinistic circles, this is a relatively modern development. Our forefathers at the time of the Reformation and for perhaps 300 years afterwards scrupulously refrained as a matter of principle from sanctioning or making or using any pictures of Jesus Christ. I note then this doctrine that it is the historic witness and constant teaching of the faithful biblical expositors from the Orthodox Fathers, to our masterful exegetes in the Reformation, to the British Reform, to our confession and larger catechism, we confess that in all matters, as in this second commandment, the grace of the gospel does not abolish the duties of the law. The goodness of God in his promise, in his covenant of promise, and the inheritance we have in Christ Jesus in no way takes away the duties we owe to him as our creator, as the eternal God whose majesty is exalted above the heavens. Rather, the apostle notes, by faith, what do we do? We establish the law. Its authority is re-upped, you might say, not merely as God the creator, but now God the savior and father and redeemer who's created us after his own image and who has put his law upon our hearts. Nothing to be adored is to be manufactured and nothing that is manufactured is to be adored. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glory which is exalted above the heavens, that there is no art or device of man by which the Godhead may be represented. And we thank you, O God, that you in your great mercy have given us grace upon grace in the gospel and that you have caused us by that same grace to have the forgiveness of our sins through the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, through he who was God in the flesh, dying in our behalf upon the cross and shedding that glorious blood for us, He who had the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, yet in weakness died for us, and in mighty power by the Spirit of God rose from the dead and conquered death so that we might have a hope and everlasting life. Have mercy upon us as your people to hold this balance, that the grace of the gospel does not abolish the law of nature or the Ten Commandments or any good and just law of your holy word, but rather reinforces and gives us a delight in those holy laws. Help us then to take good heed to ourselves, not to look to our good intentions, but rather to the goodness of your holy commandments. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.